Welcome everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, based on whichever part of the world you're in right now. Welcome to the next episode of Rethinking Legal Ops, where we have future-thinking conversations about how legal tech and AI are transforming the way that we practice law everywhere. All right, so we have the pleasure of hosting Dorna Moini, who is the founder and CEO of Gavel, formerly known as Documate, which leverages automation to expedite the legal process and, well, you know, allows lawyers to spend more time being lawyers. And I know I won't be able to do Gavel justice with my amateur summary, so I'll really just leave that to our expert, Dorna. Um, and prior to that, Dorna was an associate at Sidley Austin, and she holds, in my view, really one of the best titles ever handed out by the American Bar Association. She was chosen for the Fast Case 50 list as a quote-unquote legal rebel um, by the ABA for her work in using technology to improve access to legal services. Um, it's so great to have you here, Dorna. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. I'm super excited to chat with you. All right, wonderful. So much. Uh, so just to sort of start us off, you know, Gavel has come such a long way since its founding more than five years ago. Can you speak a little bit to both your and Gavel's origin story? Yes. So I started my career as a lawyer at a law firm. I, I worked at two big law firms, last at Sidley Austin, and I never actually planned on going into the legal tech world. What I wanted to do was I did some work pro bono, uh, specifically one of the areas that I did a lot of pro bono work in was with domestic violence survivors. And I was finding that I was spending a lot of my time on the cases in the early stages of the case. And as a result, one, I didn't have enough time to take on as many pro bono clients as I wanted, but two, I wasn't able to spend my time on the parts of the case where I really felt like my expertise was needed. So taking on appeals, going to court with the with the client more more frequently, uh, taking on the more fact-intensive and legal-intensive arguments. So what I really wanted to do was, at the time, build a very specific tool, a uh, tech tool, something sort of like TurboTax or LegalZoom, you can imagine that, but not for those areas, for domestic violence survivors in California. So at the time, I did not have any knowledge of technology or coding, so I got together with a friend of mine who was an engineer, and we basically built exactly that, a TurboTax-like product that would take you end-to-end -end through the domestic violence process, asking you questions, uh, giving you documents for restraining orders, child support, child visitation, all the legal issues that you might have that are related to someone who is in a, in a, in a domestic violence relationship. And we launched that tool, it was, we launched it to consumers, and we got quite a bit of traction with that tool. And what started happening is we started getting inbound interest from other lawyers, not just the consumers, but other lawyers. And what they were saying is, can you help us build a tool like what you built for domestic violence, but for other areas of law in completely different jurisdictions? So for us, we, we initially started to build out those tools. We were like, okay, let's help this organization build an eviction tool. Um, let's help this other organization help build an expungement tool for criminal records. And then we realized that th it was getting to be a lot of like services-based work. And we were working on individual individual projects with legal aid organizations, law firms. And so we sort of took a step back and we thought, what's the best way for us to help these tools get off the ground? And for us, that was what we're building with Gavel now. So we built what is now Gavel, which is an end-to-end -end automation platform for everything from client intake to document automation to building full-fledged legal products that you can 
provide for free to clients or, or monetize and white label and brand as your own products. Um, so that's uh, that's a little bit about about the journey over to where we're, what we're doing. No, that's all. That's incredible. Um, and I know sort of recently Gavel really has taken a little bit of a turn toward generative AI. Um, you've launched Gavel Blueprint. Was wondering, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about Blueprint as a product? What was your decision making process to really sort of get on the generative AI train to incorporate Gen AI into your product? Yes. So great question. Uh, we are, as you know, Gavel has a rules based engine for building all sorts of logic. Lawyers get onto the platform, they build if-then statements, very complex if-then statements, but using no code to create these automated workflows. We were thinking about, uh, you know, AI is obviously is having a huge impact on the legal fields now, but we've been thinking about this for, for a while on what are the best ways for us to, to work this technology in where we already have a rules-based engine that is, that is creating these automated tools. And where we found the, the biggest use case for was for the actual building of these workflows in the first place. So mm -hmm. what Gavel Blueprint does is it allows our users to leverage generative AI to create these automated workflows from their existing templates in minutes. And why that's important for us is that there's there's obviously a lot of um, there's there's a lot we we're, we're probably going to get into today about about AI and the risks of AI and 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 errors that can be made. But what Gavel Blueprint does is it puts all of that control into the hands of the lawyer. It's mm -hmm. AI that you can understand fully, you can understand and control. Understand because you know what went into it. You decide every single template that you put into Gavel that is going to create that automated workflow. So you know the quality of that work product and you put your best quality work product in there. And then two, the control piece, you know exactly what's going to come out. So the attorney has full control over looking at every single rule that is being embedded into a work into the workflow as a result of what the generative AI has pulled out of their documents and approving or rejecting all of those rules. So gives them control over source rules, outcomes of these, these tools and, and really streamlines their, their document and, and work product generation. So I think that the, the level of transparency, it sounds like, you know, you've really incorporated it into Gavel Blueprint. It sounds incredible. Um, and so we're very excited to see the impact it's going to make out um, in the legal domain. Now to sort of turn into it onto a different topic, um, really going off of what you said before about how Gavel was founded initially as this application designed to help uh, survivors of intimate partner violence. And also, because last time we talked, you really discussed how access to justice is an important issue for you. Um, and of course, I also see that it's one of Gavin's, Gavel's almost leading principles, um, so to speak, this idea of making access to the law universal. I'm just wondering, you know, could you speak more to what you view as Gavel's role and maybe even legal tech's role more generally with respect to moderator, mod, moderating this access to justice? Absolutely. So uh, some may know the stat that about 92% of low-income Americans don't have access to critical legal services that they need. Um, so they have either no, no access or not enough access to those legal services for things that are oftentimes life and death matters, like housing, bodily safety, government benefits. There are so many of these areas of law that really impact the day-to-day -day lives of human beings. Um, and people don't have access to that. So what we, and it, there's, I'm going to give you, throw another stat at you. Every attorney in the U.S. would have to do about 1,800 hours of pro bono work in order to meet 
the justice gap. Mm-hmm. So that's like the whole point for every single attorney who, who is uh, who is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, while pro bono work is a very important and critical part of solving the, the justice gap, it will not do it alone. And so technology has to be involved in order to scale up the work that these incredible legal aid attorneys, pro bono attorneys uh, across the field are, are working on. And so what we see uh, as both Gavel's role and legal tech's role is in helping scale up lawyers' expertise and deliver that to the public. So as a a few examples, we started within the legal aid field. We still work a lot with legal aid organizations, but we also work with with law firms. And there are opportunities in both of those areas to create automated tools that one attorney can use to serve many people instead of one attorney sitting one-on-one and providing bespoke legal assistance. Um, So increasing that supply of online legal products is really critical to us uh, in in solving or helping at least make a dent in the justice gap. Absolutely. And I think when it comes to at least, you know, this is from my like very amateur perspective, it seems like a lot of the applications designed to moderate this type of justice gap, you know, you it can be designed specifically for the social issue that is at play, whether that relates to, you know, let's say, again, like intimate partner violence or another social issue. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, from your point of view, when building these types of AI powered systems, that are designed to improve access to justice. Are there specific considerations, like maybe how we how we conceptualize the user user experience, user interface um, that we should keep in mind? Absolutely. I I would say the first thing would be cognitive load when we're thinking about the user experience. Uh, Oftentimes, it really depends on the area of law. For example, if you're doing basic tax stuff online, uh, Mm -hmm. you are in a a pretty neutral state of mind. But when if you are in a domestic violence situation or even, you know, divorce or so many eviction, you are at a heightened emotional level. And Mm -hmm. so Every piece of information that is presented to you that you don't need to see provides more cognitive load and, and provide, pro, 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 creates a barrier to you really being able to, as an individual, access the justice system. So the first thing that I always want like to focus on is, is removing that cognitive load. And you can do that through logic-based uh, tools to say, I don't want to show certain pieces of information or certain questions or gather certain data from a user at this stage of a matter because they it's not necessary to put that in front of them. Keeping uh, obviously there are also a few other things to think about. So, so like a lot of a lot of low income uh, individuals especially don't have access to computers. Sometimes they do if they're going to like a public library, but but very often they don't have access to computers. So you want to make things that are mobile friendly, have responsive design. Uh, you want the interface to be really clear with clear menus and paths, and avoid legal jargon. Uh, this is one that is definitely my soapbox. So many of our court forms still have Latin words inside of them. Uh, never, never mind Latin words, but if you are creating a legal tool for consumers, keep it at a grade level that is much lower even within the English language, like six to eight is typically where we say to aim, depending on who your audience is, grade level wise, because that's what's understandable to people who are going to through, through the legal system. Um, and then a few other things I'll touch on, uh, accessibility standards. So. Want, you want to make sure that everything you're building is as is accessible to people with disabilities, having clear fonts, readable fonts, color contrast, complying with standards like the ADA. If you use a tool like Gavel, that's something we've already thought about in when you when you launch the tool uh, built using our, our tool set. It's also really useful to put images and videos and audio to guide people through multiple ways of learning. 
Um, and then finally, I would say human support. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you're building a technology tool, it's great to have additional resources so that if someone doesn't have their, their use case met through your technology, they can still have access to a legal aid organization, a human lawyer for additional legal work, or just help resources and videos that they can access. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, um, would love for you to sort of get back on your soapbox just a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it seems like, you know, the absence of just plain and clear language in the legal system is, you know, not only a personal issue for you, but also, again, like a frequent criticism that we see levied against our judicial system. So I'm just sort of wondering, like, you know, like on your like in your point of view, you know, what could we, like, what are the solutions? What could we potentially do to, again, like moderate this gap between, you know, like everybody needs the type of legal knowledge to be able to make our way through these documents. Um, how can we sort of moderate that? How can we democratize access through plain language? Definitely. Well, I think the first thing that we can do other than really revamping a lot of these court forms that are still antiquated is creating technology tools out of them. And I know I'm a little bit biased in saying that, but that that really that truly does feel like it's the only way to solve it. So you have, for example, that, that's exactly what we did with domestic violence forms when I started what was then called Help Self Legal, which was our domestic violence platform at the time. We saw that there were 20 plus different potential forms that mm -hmm. you might need to file with the court in California for a domestic violence restraining order because if you were married to the person, you might need a bunch of different documents for spousal support, child support, child visitation, there's all these other things that come with it. And so the user goes to a court website and sees a bunch of different PDFs that they may need to download. They're not even, sometimes there are pages on the court websites that they can navigate to and somehow find that tell them which forms there are, but that should not be the starting place. The starting place should be, okay, you, what is your name? What is your legal issue? Let's guide you through only seeing what you need to, and then let's automatically route you to the places that you need you need this information to go and help you help you e-file that that documentation without needing you to leave your house, put your ch children in some form of care, uh, come to the court to wait in line for the self-help center to open like the two hours of the week that they that they serve you um, and hope that someone can help you. Absolutely, no, I think that's absolutely incredible. Um, I think just. The, I guess, again, from my point of view, it seems like the ability of the sort of software that you just described, the ability to reach a much more sort of general, you know, population um, is pretty substantial. Um, and again, it's like very excited to see all of this out in action. Um, now to turn to a little bit of a different question, and you sort of touched on this a little bit um, in your previous answers, but I'm just kind of curious, like what possible dangers to justice um, do you see that could potentially stem from the use of AI or legal tech? Um, you know, I think some folks have speculated that maybe there will be sort of a resource concentration. All of these cutting edge AI tools are going to go to the big law firms of the world rather than being operationalized by nonprofits or pro bono attorneys. I would just love to hear your perspective um, on all of that. That's a good question. I actually feel like sometimes it ends up being the opposite with a lot of technology because the from what you said in terms of the large law firms versus the smaller like like legal aid type organizations. I feel like every time I speak to legal aid organizations, they are thinking so innovatively in how they can do more with less because they've had such few resources for so long. And so, uh, for example, that's why they were one of our first audiences at mm -hmm. Gavel is that they were scrambling for how to help these huge audiences of people who were, who were flowing in through their doors. 
And a lot of the tech tools that are being used by them, by small firms, up to the largest, are really off-the-shelf, can be off-the-shelf tools. You don't necessarily need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on, uh, on these types of tools. They're things that is, are accessible to everyone. Uh, but in terms of making sure that they are done in a way that is safe, I think that it's critical that lawyers be, and legal professionals really be in control of their own destiny. And we've seen already the debates in the large AI community uh, about the tug and pull between AI safety and moving fast, and also within the legal community about the dangers of not checking your work and uh, people who have been sanctioned for that. So when we're using tools as lawyers, I think the largest risk probably at this point, um, at this time at least, is the error and the misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. And in any situation where you might put in the same set of facts, but potentially get multiple different answers, different results, depending on what the AI decides to spit out, it's a situation that could have serious consequences for individuals' rights, you know, company, whoever your clients, uh, clients' rights and and their lives. So you want to make sure that the attorney is checking every part of their work. And that's something that you know we we thought about a lot when we were building building blueprint. Um, but from the from the sort of ethical standpoint, the California State Bar trustees just approved uh, ethics guidance for attorneys who are incorporating AI into their practices. And those guidelines emphasize some of the things that have really always been within our our ethics rules. Mm -hmm. confidentiality, competence and competence and supervision. Now, instead of supervising paralegals, it's supervising AI, um, ensuring that your use is free of any bias and then not billing clients for, for work done by AI. Those are the, the few top things that were mentioned there. So um, I think really it's taking the prior lens that we had and applying it to this, this situation. There are obviously lots of other potential risks as well, like bias, discrimination, privacy concerns, but we could spend an entire day talking about each of those <laughs> right exactly um no I think that's actually so fascinating I think I had actually never thought about it in the sort of flipped point of view in the sense like yeah you know now I'm thinking back on it it does seem most of the adoption is coming from you know smaller firms or these nonprofits. I'm thinking back to um, you know, I was at a big law firm a couple of summers back who shall not be named. Um, but, you know, we did get and I've heard from friends who also sort of received, you know, firm wide notices saying nobody touch AI until we know what to do with it. And it seems like there is this. There is this attempt to, um, you know, like remain with the status quo, like we know what we're doing correct. We don't we are not at a loss of um, human hours human manpower so we will just you know we will stay as it is but it, i think it's so interesting to see again that it seems like it's really these nonprofits um who are taking the charge there um you kind of referenced this a little bit in your last answer where like how not only lawyers but also clients can again like harness the powers of you know, legal tech you know it seems like we're really living in this environment where chat gpt aa power solutions they really aren't going away anytime soon so i'm just kind of curious like and from your point of view like how should we teach whether attorneys or aspiring attorneys to really leverage as much as this power as they can going forward and you know, i'm thinking maybe up about the ways that the legal curriculum is currently structured you know how do we prepare um current and aspiring lawyers to really go out in this type of ai powered world yeah, definitely. I think that there are lots of opportunities for collaboration across the field. So I'm a big proponent of really practical learning within law schools. And even when I was in law school, which I'm going to 
date myself, but like there was no one was talking about AI. No one was really talking about technology. But I think that the the classes that I found most useful were the ones where I was actually in the field doing work, the clinical work. And those were the ones that taught me, taught me how to practice. So um, one of the things that we've seen happen a lot within the, the combination of law schools, law firms, and then also legal aid organizations working together is working together with students to build practical tools that could have an impact. Uh, we've done a few projects with laws, law schools and legal aid organizations in this vein where the law, law firm or the legal aid organization comes up with an idea of something that's going to have a really big impact, but maybe they don't have time to actually build it out. So the law students are have some more time uh, and they are very interested in getting their hands dirty, getting practical experience and building tools that both have an impact, but also, you know, honestly, just putting on their resumes because that's what's going to differentiate them. And so we've done a few of these types of tools where uh, like we did one recently with uh, Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles and Southwestern Law School in, in LA. And they work together to build expungement tools for, for some of their clinics. Uh, and so there, those types of examples, I think, where you can collaborate across a field, where you can re use resources of law students who can do some of the work with the expertise of the experts who might work at the legal aid organizations or at law firms are really great practical ways to get the, that, that apprenticeship model going and allow the younger or the, the more junior generation to advance within the legal field. Absolutely, no, I think that's absolutely incredible. Um, and if I recall correctly, you're sort of also, you're running your own clinic or lab out of a law school, is that correct? So yes, mm -hmm. um, I was teaching the, the Legal Innovations Lab at USC's law school, mm -hmm. which was uh, mostly you know, going through all sorts of different topics on mm -hmm. legal technology, but also very practical. So all the students had to build out different uh, mm -hmm. projects for the end of the semester. Some of them actually built client-facing tools that help people with different legal matters. Mm -hmm. um, there was one that was, that was pretty interesting that was helping the law students with their mental health issues. So mm -hmm. lots of really creative ideas came out of, uh, came out of that lab. Right. No, I think that's, again, very incredible. I think they're also, you know, in such a good time, I suppose, um, to be sort of thinking about these solutions. Um, maybe they're in staying in Southern California, or maybe they're hopping over to Northern California. Um, and hopefully, you know, they can put some of these plans into action. Um, Something I'm so glad to hear that you are really giving this future generation of lawyers an attempt to, you know, the ability to actually sort of go forward and try to implement some of these solutions out into the field. Um, Definitely. And, and we are always doing uh, sessions like this at law schools across across the world, really. Um, and so if anyone out there listening is interested in something like that, we're always happy to come in to the, to the class, give mm -hmm. access to gavel to the students and actually be part of part of that learning process. That's Absolutely. No, that's incredible. And to all our listeners, everybody, please take up Dorna on her offer. <laughs> um, sounds like a truly, truly phenomenal opportunity. But, you know, just want to thank you so much, Dorna, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it was just such an enlightening conversation. It was so great to learn about your and Gavel's journey, as well as really what's in store for you guys in the near future. Um, just wanted to, again, like, thank you, as well as our, our listeners for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. Great. Thank you so much. The practice of law is changing, and we're here for it. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Transforming Legal Ops. Follow us for more insightful conversations about the transformative impact of legal tech. 
and follow Speed Legal and let us know in your comments and messages about how you personally leverage legal tech to make your own work more efficient. See you next time.